Hello, everybody, and welcome to the podcast. We have a fantastic episode for you today. Please make sure and keep up with everything that I have going on at ShaneMoss, M-A-U-S-S dot com. You can keep up with things like my documentary, Psychonautics, a comics exploration of psychedelics, which is out now. We've had a lot of great reviews coming in, a lot of positive feedback. If you haven't checked it out yet, it's available to rent and buy today. It's on Amazon and iTunes, and even I've had I had a couple people uh, write early on that we're having trouble finding it in other countries, and it's out there. It's on it's on YouTube for rent or purchase. It's on Vimeo. It's on PlayStation, Xbox. It's on so many different platforms. So no matter where you're at, you should be able to see it. Write me if that uh, if that is not the case. And uh, we've been getting so many positive things said about it. I've I've been really happy with it. It's like I said, my first documentary. It was so much fun to do. This is two years in the making. Please uh, make sure and check it out, and you'll support psychedelic advocacy and research and also you'll be supporting what i do i would like to do lots more documentaries on all different subjects in the future this is the first one so a lot depends on how this one does so keep pushing keep spreading the word keep writing those reviews that helps me out so much and while you're at shanemossmauss.com you can check out my dates for stand-up science which we're adding dates all the time stand-up science Two comedians, that's me and a second comedian, and two scientists on each show. Half comedy, half science, one unique show. Comedy sets, and then scientists giving talks about their research, and then all four of us getting on stage at the end for a panel discussion led mostly by your questions, so everyone gets to be involved. It is a ton of fun, and I'll be doing this for the foreseeable future, so if you see, if you go on there, you look at the dates, you see that you missed it when I came through your city, well, fear not. I will very likely be coming back through your city very soon. It's been uh, it's been a hit. I, I would love for you guys to keep spreading the word. I'd like for it to be more of a hit, but we've been packing out pretty much everywhere, so it looks like I'll, I'll be doing this for the foreseeable future. And every time I come through uh, a town, it's different guests each time. It's nerve-wracking. It's exhilarating. I, I You know, the different academics have different levels of experience speaking publicly and but I've been really dialing it in and helping coach them I've been figuring out what topics resonate the most with live audiences and the show just keeps on getting better and better all of the time I've been learning so much and it's a tremendous amount of work but it's been very rewarding so please check that out shanemossmauss.com enjoy today's episode are we yes where are we here why are we here not entirely clear we are misfits thrust into existence by random chance with no hints at all as to how we're supposed to make sense of it all it's immensely bizarre here we are hello everybody and welcome to the here we are podcast today i am talking with brain hub postdoctoral fellow in the computational biology department at Carnegie Mellon. Morgan Worthlin is joining me today. Morgan, thank you so much. Of course. Good morning. Thanks for having me on the show. Oh, man. 
thanks for being on the show. Thanks for doing stand up science last <laughs> night. Yeah, that was uh, a lot of fun. And we had a sold out show on a Monday night in mm-hmm. Pittsburgh in freezing cold <laughs> weather. Freezing cold weather. I was I was pretty nervous about what the turnout was gonna be like on mm-hmm. a Monday in freezing cold, <laughs> but Pittsburgh came out, so I was yeah. I was real happy. Mm-hmm. It was uh, a fun show. So uh, why don't you start with uh, sharing with the listeners a little bit about your background and how you, how you got to be here? Yeah, well, you know, it's sort of a funny roundabout way. Like when I was a little kid, I was actually gunning to be a paleontologist, go dig up dinosaurs in the Sahara or something. But, you know, uh, the teenage years happened as they do and got more into music and uh, the idea of being a composer was really compelling to me. So when I started college, I was going to be a composer and I was going to write this difficult abstract music. And I got I got a bit disillusioned with that. And I found myself much more interested in questions of why. So why does this particular sequence of chords make us feel anxious or calm or afraid? And of course, that led me more to biology and being curious if that extended to the rest of the natural world. So I switched to biology and things sort of came full circle when I began studying songbirds, which are, of course, dinosaurs, uh, living dinosaurs. So really, (laughs) I'm uh, living the childhood dream now of studying the amazing vocal behavior, not only in ourselves, speech and language, but also uh, the components of speech that are shared with all the amazing animals that we share this planet with. So what animals do we share uh, some of those components with? Right. So this is this is a tricky question, you know, not not only to explain to people, but even, you know, within the community. Because if you ask a speech and language person, they usually have very restricted definitions where, you know, pretty much only humans qualify as having language. Right. So it's sort of a compromise. I like to say language is the human specific version of what in the broader sense we call vocal learning. And so vocal learning is shared by, uh, as I was discussing um, at the show last night, very few animals in the animal kingdom. So songbirds have it, uh, whales and dolphins, of course, all the beautiful songs they sing. And to some people's surprise, uh, some bats also sing and some hummingbirds, as well as, of course, you know, parrots, polywana cracker and all that. And it's also surprising uh, how many animals uh, do not have this behavior. So, for instance, our closest relatives, chimps and gorillas, they can't even necessarily vocalize on command, much less learn a novel vocalization. There's some evidence that maybe they can, you know, learn to use calls in different contexts, but that's basically the equivalent of your dog, you know, learning speak or growl. So, but they, you know, with all the thousands of words, some of these, you know, amazing border collies can learn to respond to, you know, where uh, a dog can be trained to go retrieve the green ball. And among, you know, 20 different objects, it can come back with that green ball. But if you ask your dog to say back to you, green ball, you know, it's they're going to have a hard time with that. <laughs> so sure. that's just an example. Hmm. So why, why isn't that our primate ancestors, well... Not necessarily our ancestors, but uh, why primates with 
common ancestors, why have haven't they evolved these vocalizations? It, I mean, it seems, well, that's a fantastic question. <laughs> and I mean, literally it seems the heart of my research. Useful, right? Yeah. I mean, the, the, this this talking stuff is mm-hmm. sure seems to uh, confer a lot of benefits onto us. Yeah, um, you know, it's a complicated question. I think I could answer that a couple different ways. But one thing I want to start out with is, you know, we tend to think about the animal kingdom in a very anthropocentric way, where we ask a lot of times of the animal kingdom, you know, why aren't they more like us? You know, why don't they talk? Why don't they have these complex Being that societies? we're humans and humans are so great, <laughs> Man, why so not be great. more like humans? Yeah, why aren't they more like us? And so right. we measure basically the entire animal kingdom by the yardstick of ourselves. But if you think about like a bat that's echolocating, you know, I mean, sometimes I wonder, you know, are they sitting around in their roost, their colony in the cave and saying, you know, why are humans so crappy at this? Yeah. <laughs> you know, and every animal has its own specializations like that. And if you think about the complete opposite, like some parasite living in your intestine, you know, no, basically no brain, you know, no complex gut, nothing going on. And yet they're successful. They are the best at doing what they do. And that's that's what evolution is. It's not the smartest. It's not the fastest, the strongest. It's just who is good enough at making it to the next, you know, the next year, the next month, the next moment. And it doesn't not necessarily benefit a parasite to be able to talk about the sports team around the water cooler <laughs> or whatever. That's not really helping them do their job. No, no, no. <laughs> so what about... I, I mean, what what are those main differences? Because the the things that do have signaling, speech, mm-hmm. song, it's it's so varied. Mm-hmm. You go from human to bird to whales, dolphins. What what is that determining factor? Like, why why does a shark not uh, have vocalization mm-hmm. where, it, where it looks like somewhat similar to a dolphin? Well, they do make the. <laughs> Which I don't know why they make that noise. You know right, they're coming right. up on you because they make that. Speaking of speaking of ominous tones and why certain tones are ominous. But why why does would a shark not vocalize, but a, a whale or a dolphin would? Well, I think part of that also uh, has to do with um, there need to be certain prerequisites in in place, right? And some of those are things like uh, social prerequisites. So if you think about humans, songbirds, cetaceans, they live in these highly, you know, complex societies where there are a lot of like relationships and, you know, hierarchies that they need to keep track of. But of course, there are lots of animals that also have complex societies, but no complex learned vocal behavior. Again, like the great apes besides ourselves. But they have other things like gestural communication. Like your audience uh, can't see this, but, you know, as I'm talking to you here, you know, I'm waving my hands around, and that's part of communication that is, you know, honestly massively understudied, that sort of integration of vocal and visual signaling. But our primate ancestors do a lot more of that. You know, they have all sorts of facial expressions, you know, smiles, grins, lip smacks that have communicative value as well. So there needs to be the social prerequisite, but there also need to be um, just a simple physiological prerequisites. So for instance, a lot of our vocalization, you know, you need to have vocal cords, uh, the larynx, or in the case of songbirds, a syrinx. And they actually have two two voice boxes. What are they called? A, a syrinx. Syrinx. Yep, a syrinx. 
Right. So they have two of them, and that allows them to do some of the amazingly complex songs that you can hear birds doing, because they're almost doing a duet with themselves. Hmm. Um, so right. That's, so there need to be these physi- uh, physiological, you know, simple physical substrates that a I'm shark, for instance, doesn't have. That's not common knowledge that birds aren't doing duets to themselves. That's the yeah. first time I'm learning this. Yeah. I, um, one of my favorite bird calls is the hermit thrush, mm-hmm. um, and uh, they're this sort of cryptic bird. A lot of times, you know, they're just hiding in in the shrub. But especially out here on the East Coast, if you go out in the evenings, you hear them the, doing these beautiful haunting calls where you can hear multiple notes at the same time. Hmm. Um, oh. Yeah. So, you know, vocal learning, uh, it's not inevitable. Like there are other ways to communicate. Like a lot of fish, like uh, I, I'm not sure if sharks do this uh, exactly, but they communicate um, some of them through drumming on their swim bladders, which makes these sort of like tapping tones that uh, I think might they uh, I don't know how well this is studied, like exactly what the communicative value is there. Um, they also a lot of fish have um, these things called lateral lines. You know, you see sort of the stripe along the side of a lot of fish's body. Mm-hmm. Well, in that stripe, there are hair cells. Um, or sort of the equivalent of hair cells, just like you have in your ear. And so when you see a lot of like fish schooling behavior where it's like, how do they all stay so like tightly wound like that, you know, moving as a whole unit, all these fish, a lot of it is because they can sense the pressure between each other the same way that your ear can detect the pressure, you know, coming from my voice through the air right now. Hmm. So, you know, it sort of blurs the line, like what is communication? Hmm. But to a degree, you could say these fish moving together you know, or two humans dancing together is a similar form of communication that's just physical instead of auditory. Right, and there's hormone communication out <laughs> yep, there, yep. ants and, well, all sorts of things using hormones mm-hmm. to communicate. Yep. So, uh, first off, dolphins, what's their common ancestor? Did he, did you say <laughs> cows last night? I th- I always yeah, thought yeah. It, I always thought it was wolves. Nope. No? No. I so, thought whales were cows and dolphins were wolves. I've been telling people poor information <laughs> for a yeah, while. No, you're 100% wrong. Oh, so, good. good so, to, well, at, at least we're mm, nipping that in the butt yeah. right now. So I no longer will <laughs> um, be spreading poor information. Yeah. So it's, it's kind of cool. Uh, a lot of these sort of misconceptions have been resolved through uh, what's called molecular phylogenetics, which is a fancy way of saying... We take, you know, the complete set of their DNA, their genome, and then we just compare them to each other. And by doing this, we're able to resolve a lot of these longstanding problems, uh, you know, especially uh, with birds and mammals, um, because, you know, sort of around when the dinosaurs were dying off, um, it sort of opened all these niches. And so there was this explosive radiation of birds and mammals around the end of the dinosaurs where they evolved very quickly into lots of different forms. So there's not a whole lot of traces of who's related to whom left in the genome because it was so fast, if that makes sense. Mm. So one of the projects I was a part of, uh, and I'm still a part of, is uh, the Genomes 10K project and the Vertebrate Genome Project. And the goal of that effort is to sequence the genomes of all life on Earth. So every single species on the planet, we want to sequence their genomes. Um, and build sort of what we're calling like a genome arc. Because especially given how fast uh, 
because of human activities, these species are going extinct, you know, preserving their genetic material uh, hopefully makes it possible that in the future, you know, uh, conservation efforts could be done. I don't know if it's possible to bring them back from extinction, but at least for helping with, you know, breeding efforts and things. And so to answer your question, once we had some of these genomes um, of mammals, we were able to resolve some of these relationships. So whales and dolphins, uh, they're each other's closest relative. And then the next closest relative are hippopotamuses. Um, mm. So hippopotamuses are one genome where I'm uh, currently in the process of looking into uh, sequencing uh, hippo, hippo genomes uh, in part so that we can learn more about what makes whales and dolphins special. And um, maybe where you're getting the dogs at, uh, that you brought up is uh, seals. Seals' closest relatives are dogs like carnivores. In particular, ah, yeah. that's where I was because because mm -hmm. they have like small little legs mm -hmm. in, yep. their, in their skeleton, <laughs> right? Like, a yep, yep. Um, I mean, their very closest relative are the the mustelids, so like weasels and skunks and things. Um, I'm so happy I wasn't completely nah, wrong. Nah, nah. You, were, <laughs> you were on the you were on the right way there for sure. But it's 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 very cute because you can sort of think of seals as like puppy mermaids. Hmm. Oh, puppy mermaids. As if as if uh, people didn't like dogs enough already. <laughs> um, yeah, and I also study bats, which are basically just flying puppies. Bats are flying puppies? Explain yourself. <laughs> well, that's more something I say, not based on their phylogenetic relationships, <laughs> but more just because I want to, you know, try to cure people of their misconceptions oh, about Oh, so bats. you just call everything, everything that people... <laughs> Get on that airplane. I know you're scared, but it's like a puppy. <laughs> you just say that with everything? Yeah, yeah. Sharks are just like, you know, like smooth puppies, smooth water puppies. I don't know. People have a lot of misconceptions about bats. Like they're all yeah. out to drink your blood or get tangled in your hair. And they're really just these amazing, beautiful, intelligent, emotional animals. They get tangled in your hair? That's a stereotype that people that's Yeah, a fear it's, people it's have. literally this, this old the, tale people keep propagating that bats want to get tangled in your hair. It's like bats, you know, they have these amazing echolocative abilities to navigate. They, they have no desire to get tangled in your hair. It must have happened once. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I guess if it did happen, it would be so traumatic. You'd just keep <laughs> telling stories and, yeah, huh. like, like medieval viral memes. So so how do you, uh, what what techniques do you use to study what you're studying? Um, A lot, actually. So I try to approach, um, I try to approach this question from a lot of different perspectives. So, you know, we sort of roughly in science say that uh, different people, especially in uh, the sort of computer computational world that I'm living in, different people are more uh, techniques, technology focused, or and other people are more questions focused. And it's very much a complementary relationship. But you know, some people they do focus on like a specific technique or set of techniques, and they sort of try to push the what we can do forward. And then there are other people that, you know, like myself, that will take whatever tools are available. And sometimes that does involve uh, in inventing new tools and technologies, but we want to answer a specific question with pretty much whatever toolkit is uh, available. So I have done everything from uh, sort of machine learning 
um, approaches to try to decode the genome and figure out how um, how some of these processes evolve, like vocal learning, like fine motor control, um, to literally traipsing about in the Amazon <laughs> trying to find uh, interesting birds that um, can tell us something about how speech and song evolve. What do you like more, the Amazon trips? I'm going to go out <laughs> on a limb here and say you like the trips to the Amazon more than the machine learning. Oh, man. toss-up? Yeah, I love it all. I mean, I think one of the huge benefits about working in science, which is really like my dream job, is that you never get bored because it's always something new. I think, at least for me, you know, it's, it's not that I get bored easily, but it, I like to switch it up. I like having the option of uh, sometimes... You know, I am like in the field working um, often with these amazing field researchers uh, who've been studying these animals, just observing these animals, doing collections, doing counts and learning incredible things about the complexity of their behavior. Some days, you know, I'm teaching, giving public talks like last night, you know, being able to give back to the public, hear all the, the crazy questions and sometimes very fascinating questions about what people are really interested in. We didn't get any crazy questions last night, I don't think. Do you? No, I've gotten some crazy ones yeah. before, though. Um, uh, I did a lecture. <laughs> I did a lecture in Portland where, um, <laughs> you know, it was kind of similar on uh, speech and bird song. But after the lecture, it was, this this gentleman got up and went on this long story about how he tries to talk to the owls in his backyard and if he could get any advice from me on how to talk to the owls better and. You know, you just have to kind of roll with it. And <laughs> I think I did an okay job, but uh, pretty much everyone but him had a good laugh about that question. So he he was just completely serious. Just he was really dead serious. Wanted he wanted to be know better at hooting. He wanted to know how to hoot better, and if I had any resources for him, he didn't. Didn't it occur to him to just get like a recording of a of an owl and and play it. Yeah, do a playback. I mean, that's certainly a possibility, but in some ways, isn't it more interesting? Like, I mean, what if he did it, you know? <laughs> like, yeah, I, feel I, mean, like, I feel like there's a place in the world, try? there's a place in the world for eccentrics who really just want to do something wild because some, you know, like sure. think about maybe closer to your own interests. I, who was the first person that was like, hey, that mushroom looks kind of colorful and funny. <laughs> <laughs> what if I put it in my mouth? Yeah, for What if sure. I lick a toad? You know? Absolutely. <laughs> like, I just, you, gotta, you have to have eccentrics that are willing to just do something just to do it. I just don't want to be the neighbor of the guy <laughs> that's out hooting all all night long. Right, right. But, um, but anyway, um, so... Tell me, uh, tell me a little bit about what is. Uh, you gave me a tour of the lab. Mm -hmm. I want to know what a PCR is. Yeah, so PCR is a technique that was invented about two decades now, and it's really interesting because it's basically, in a lot of ways, the backbone of biomedical research. It's a way to take a small amount of DNA and amplify it into a larger amount of DNA. Um, you know, and if you do it right, you can hopefully do it so that, you know, the your amplified sample is representative of what the unamplified sample was. And, you know, this might sound very abstract, but it's it revolutionized everything. We went from uh, being able to study DNA and gene sequences only in this very limited fashion, you know, and very labor intensive to being able to study it on a huge scale which is, uh, you know, obviously enabled 
research like mine, where we're trying to sequence whole genomes, but even just medical, you know, diagnostic tests, you know, or, uh, I mean, it's, it's just, I mean, your, your audience should Google PCR because it is wild just how many things it enabled. And what's really fascinating is how it was discovered was people just, uh, looking into these bacteria that live in hot springs, like in Yellowstone, the little, the funny little blue guys in there. And they live in these hot thermal vents, but they have to have some way of dealing with that, all that heat. And so their enzymes work differently where they can uh, sort of withstand these higher temperatures. And so it was just, again, this curiosity-based How did that research. lead to this this PCR? <laughs> through, a, <laughs> through a very eccentric character. And um, I don't know if I want to... Uh, go on record telling the whole story in case I get it wrong and get a libel case, but uh, it it supposedly involved some amount of LSD and a long trip through the desert. Really? Yeah. <laughs> oh, I'm so happy I asked. Yeah, he was he was a real character. Um, huh. um, he might still be alive. Oh my god. That was the wasn't the double helix LSD as well. Uh, yeah, I th- I think that was a part of that too. But it inspired it was... his creativity, and he came up with this idea that yeah. again it revolutionized science. But it came from curiosity-driven research. I'm pretty sure you know all about CRISPR. I'm sure your audience has heard of this thing, CRISPR. No, well, explain for the people that. Yeah, uh, of course. I, I I wouldn't assume we've we've touched on it a couple times mm-hmm. on the on the podcast, but I want to assume that everyone knows what it yeah, is. Yeah, of course. So CRISPR, another uh, sort of buzzword you hear going around for it is gene editing. So this is the ability we have now to go into um, your DNA, and let's say you have some harmful, you know, life-threatening mutation. We can now hypothetically snip out that mutation and put in the healthy version of that gene, which, you know, obviously for clinical uh, aspects, the benefits of this are going to be uh, astonishing if we can get it right. And I think there's a lot more testing that needs to be done before we can get it right. Um, very unfortunately for the community, somebody, um, uh, a Chinese-based, uh, China-based researcher um, just went ahead and kind of did it with human embryos um, in a very sloppy way, despite there being sort of a worldwide um, agreement among researchers that we should do a lot more testing and just ethical discussions before using this on human embryos. But that Pandora's box is open now. So, you know, people are talking about, well, what's next? You know, designer babies or <laughs> people doing genetic mo- modifications themselves, biohacking, like that door is open now. I want triple larynx. <laughs> yeah. I want to I want to be uh I want to be able to sing three different songs. One man barbershop quartet. At once. <laughs> what do yeah, you think? Well, is it in the cards for me? I mean, you know, like well, as I mentioned, uh, if you want to come by and subject yourself to research, we're always looking for volunteers. Um, so, so now this this whole right, area is right. blown open, right? So, CRISPR, you know, it's literally, you know, it's it has the potential to change the human species, and we've headed down that path already. Like yeah. the the implications of this technology are profound, and where it came from is also really fascinating. It's similar to PCR. It came from curiosity-driven research of people studying these bacteria that just live in the mud. Mm-hmm. You know, they're the most primitive, you know, sort of uninteresting 
uh, on a surface level bacteria and they, you know, they live in the mud, like some of them at the bottom of the ocean, just sitting around there, but they've invented this way of protecting themselves from viruses. Because as you know, you know, and probably a lot of your audience knows, a lot of viruses, what they do is they attack the cell and they just sort of dump their own DNA into the cell's DNA. And so then this poor cell is doing the work for the virus to replicate it. So this is very bad if you're, you know, this little bacterium and, well, you've only got one cell. Right. So they invented this incredible way, evolved really, this incredible way to cut out that snippet of viral DNA. And so it's like, wow, that's really, that's really amazing. They have this way to edit their own genome. And then uh, people like Jennifer Doudna got in touch with these researchers and had the brilliant idea of, well, what, what if we could do that in biomedicine? And here we have CRISPR. So I love to, I love to bring this up because, you know, a lot of people, especially when they hear, you know, about things like what I do with studying, you know, birds or other people studying things that seem really like, well, what's the point of that? You know, what benefits will that have for human health? Bacteria. We don't need to know about bacteria. Right. Or like Sarah Palin a couple of years ago with like, we're spending, you know, all these billions of dollars on flies. And it's like. (laughs) That was a fantastic Sarah Palin impression, by the way. (laughs) Thank you. But yeah, flies is where all the action's at. Literally, yeah. Almost everything about genetics, you know, we've learned from flies. You know, not (sighs) everything, but they they are the powerhouse. Flies are the powerhouse of genetic research. Well, thanks for just bumming out my day by bringing Sarah Palin into the conversation. <laughs> I know. I so so culturally irrelevant. Sarah Palin as little as I can. I know. But uh, yeah, it's, well, it sounds like all the big action is coming out of uh, bacteria. Hey, mm-hmm. are you working for big bacteria? <laughs> you're, you're, you're really, I know. I'm you just really a, got the bacteria prop. I'm just, I'm just a bacteria machine. shill. They're just, they're just sending me their, their ATP through the soil, you know, a little kickback. No, but they, the bacterial lobby. But that is such a fantastic point that that this is because I mean I have a science podcast, yeah, and I don't sit around thinking about the importance of studying bacteria mm-hmm. to translate this to say members of Congress, right, who have uh, who are disinterested in science at the uh, to say it nicely, usually vehemently opposed right. to anything scientific right. at all uh is is it, yeah you know uh, it's troubling it's it's frustrating and it can sometimes be a tough sell but it's also it's i i can have empathy for where they're coming from because yeah. a lot of people when they think about well why do i care about funding scientific research a lot of them it's this personal connection it's like well my grandma had alzheimer's or my sister has diabetes you know there's this immediate health concern you know, cancer, of course, this huge killer. And so people are like, you know, I don't want to lose my daughter to cancer. It's this very emotional thing. Right. And so, you know, they write to Congress or, you know, Congress hears that or they have their own experiences with that. And if they want to do like a moonshot, let's cure cancer. You know, we need to cure Alzheimer's and they'll throw billions of dollars at for, that are earmarked for Alzheimer's or earmarked for cancer. And, Again, I'm empathetic to the impulse there, but that's not how science works. Science is based on curiosity, and you never know where the big discoveries are going to come from. Sometimes it's a total accident, like penicillin. And we need to fund curiosity-driven research 
to get the most out of science. Wait, penicillin reference. You are working for big bacteria. <laughs> Guilty. Guilty as charged. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I mean, so, I, I mean, how do you... How do you imagine a different system than than what we have? Just opening up, I mean, more science funding in general. But then, how do you decide which areas of science get the funding? And well, I guess um, my answer with that to that would be leave it to the experts. So uh, within science, um, you know, you have these. Most of science is publicly funded, at least in the U.S., and it's coming mainly through. Uh, NIH, the National Institutes of Health, and NSF, the National Science Foundation. And, you know, and there are others, uh, of course, as well. But how it would ideally work is that, you know, these grants get submitted and scientists themselves review them and they determine what is, you know, compelling, what is good research that we're going to learn something interesting from. And scientists themselves decide how best to allocate that funding. But the more and more of it that is earmarked for specific purposes, sort of the more constrained we have to be about what kinds of questions we can ask. Um, so I think it would be best to, you know, sort of do things more how it was in like the post-war era, like, you know, in the 60s, where people could just ask these wild questions. And, you know, the funders, you know, may, I don't know if they were more uninterested or if they just trusted scientists more right they just threw money you know to science because they believed in the scientific uh you know scientists ability to be the best ones to understand how to move science as a field forward but of course now we're living in this climate where uh literally even climate climate change is this massive consensus among scientists you know and that it is caused accelerated by human activity but the people uh, funding it, you know, Congress, you know, not not the people that are funding it. The people that are funding it are you and me. But the people uh, with control over those funds, Congress, they don't e- they flat out deny that it's a reality. So you've had this um, congressional as well as, unfortunately, a lot of public loss of faith in science um, that I think is, you know, it's it's sad because if we did uh, fund science at more of the level that it used to be funded at. Um, I'm going to get this statistic wrong, but um, there's some statistic out there about, you know, kind of return on investment from various sectors of society. And a lot of people would think, oh, well, maybe it's tech or maybe it's, you know, just uh, tax cuts or whatever. One of the best return on investments for, you know, a government body is science. You know, because science is where you get the technological breakthroughs, right. you know, whether whether it's Teflon or radio, computers, you know, it's all coming from scientific research. Those are the things that change our society and, you know, enrich our lives, um, you know, and the more science funding stagnates as it has been, you know, <laughs> kind of the poorer our lives become, unfortunately. So if there's any Congress people listening, uh, what, what do you... Um what you should know from, if anything, from this podcast is that we need to do more LSD and study bacteria. Absolutely. I think is, yeah. <laughs> is yeah. And, and mannequins, little, these, these amazing birds that I study in the jungle doing 
they do these incredible backflips and everything. Um, what? Singing bats. <laughs> is, is that a mating thing? Backflips? Yeah, yeah. Um, everybody who's I, listening. I, I imagine it's not like a survival, like a matrix, like a, I'm picturing like <laughs> dodging. A- oh my God. It's even better. It's even better. Everybody who's listening right now, you know, if you're not driving, <laughs> uh, pause for a second and Google uh, bird moonwalk, moonwalking bird. Uh, and it's the first video that comes up, and it will blow your mind. Uh, save save it for later. Um, but yeah. yeah, there are these amazing birds called mannequins that I study. What what got you in the uh, in your car accident? What happened here? Well, I heard about <laughs> bird moonwalking, <laughs> and I just couldn't help myself. Yeah, no, they're incredible. They're these birds that do these high speed dances. They're so fast. Some of these dances you can't what even birds see again? them. Mannequins. Okay. Uh, not the ones you find in the mall, but rather the ones you find in the rainforest. Um, And they do these amazing high-speed dances where they're back-flipping, they're zip-zapping between different tree twigs. Um, And it's part of this whole uh, courtship display that the males will do uh, cooperatively um, in order to kind of attract mates. Ah, cooperative. So is is this like when the male peacocks like line up in a, oh, what do they call it? There's like a, a word lek. for it. Yes, a lek. A lek. Yep. Is, is it a lek? Precisely. It's a okay. lek mating system. Oh. Mm-hmm. Or sage grouse. You see, yeah, you see some of this in the avian kingdom. Hmm. Um, uh, and yeah, it's really interesting. And so I'm, I'm down there, you know, studying these incredible birds. And, you know, again, it's like, well, What's the point of that? You know, what are we going to learn from that? Well, uh, what I would like to submit is that they are, you can think of them as experts of fine motor control. So they are animals that are, you know, operating at the very limits of how fast and coordinated and, you know, controlled movement can be. And so if we want to understand things like dexterity, how we're able to hold these microphones and write things down, you know, go salsa dancing, uh, studying these animal experts is a great way to do that. And there's actually a name for that field. It's called neuroethology. And so this is this is a field um, that was founded uh, about half a century ago by, you know, uh, if you Google like Conrad Lorenz, you'll see these cute pictures of this old German guy with... Um, imprinting. Imprinting, precisely, with his little family of ducks following him around. Yeah. But it was just these people that just sat and, you know, watched and thought about animal behavior. And it really developed into this incredible field of people studying bats and barn owls and, of course, songbirds. And we le- we've learned so much from studying these animal experts, like from studying barn owls. We learned a lot of what we know about how hearing works. By studying songbirds, we learned about how sex hormones work in the brain, about how neurogenesis happens in adults, how new neurons are born, and of course, a lot about how speech and learning works, uh, speech and vocal learning. So um, one of my really big goals as a researcher going forward is I really want to bring back this neuroethological approach. I'm actually giving a uh, giving a talk on this in April at a conference, uh, sort of the future of neuroethology. And I think that another thing that is really holding back science, aside from funding, is that we've sort of become addicted to the inbred mouse. These, you know, bored, overfed, depressed, socially bizarre, genetically bizarre mice 
that are absolutely useful for a lot of things. You know, again, you know, flies, bacteria, these model systems, because people have been studying them for so long, um, we've learned a tremendous amount about sort of the nuts and bolts of biology. But because there's so much money and there's so much inertia behind these inbred mouse models, people try to study everything with them. You know, it's sort of like when you have a a mouse-shaped hammer, you know, everything looks like a nail. And it's very frustrating, especially within behavioral research, because in a lot of ways, they're a very uh, behaviorally impoverished animal compared to like a mannequin, like a songbird, like all the diversity of animals we have in the animal kingdom that we could be learning from. So one thing that frustrates me especially is um, there are a lot of uh, people studying mouse vocal behavior now. And they're really trying to make it into, you know, well, we can study all of language with these mice. Um, Some people, some people are more careful than others. Whereas there's a lot of evidence that these mice are not making volitional calls at all. They're not learning their vocalizations. There's some suggestion that mouse vocalizations might just be a byproduct of them moving around in the cage. Literally kind of like the equivalent more of like wheezing. Um, (laughs) Literally. And so, you know, there, there, there's this fantastic experiment um, that I showed last night that has been done where if you have a mouse uh, knockout model where this mouse lacks its cerebral cortex entirely, it has no cortex, all the folded thinky parts of the brain, um, it still makes perfectly normal vocal behavior. So <laughs> it's really, you know, it's one of the worst models you could think of for behavior in a lot of ways. And yet... Uh, this has sort of become just the the centerpiece of all of animal research. And I think it's not that we should abandon the mouse entirely, but we should consider other animal models. Like another one that comes to mind are naked mole rats. Another thing for your audience to pause and Google, naked mole rat. They are perhaps, you know, I think all animals are cute, but they are perhaps one of the uglier animals in the animal kingdom. Yeah. Well, they're like a they're kind of a cute sort of ugly. Like they're oh, they're yeah. so ugly, it's ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, they're definitely like ugly cute for sure. But what's fascinating about them is even though they're a rodent, a small rodent, which predicted based on their body size, they should live you know maybe a couple of years. They live decades, decades and decades. And what's also fascinating about them is they have incredible cancer resistance. Um, they might even be potentially immune to cancer, you know, or if they do get it, it's at very, very low rates, even when injected with like horrible carcinogenic drugs. And so by studying these naked mole rats and how do they protect themselves from cancer? How do they, um, you know, get rid of cancerous cells? We could learn so much about how to potentially treat cancers in humans. But again, because of the inertia of mouse research, right? you know, this mouse juggernaut, People are still mostly only studying everything, everything in mouse. And we're we're missing out on everything that we could learn by exploring more of the animal kingdom. So is it is it hard to kind of get funding uh, because you kind of have to start from square one? There's already all of this, uh, all of the, the this long history of all of these studies. So so much information has already been gathered about rats and you kind of have to uh, almost start all over in a way. Yeah, it's, it's incredibly frustrating. Um, 
our lab has submitted, you know, several grants, you know, in science these days, grants have very low success rates. Uh, you know, you, you see grants from people that could win Nobel prizes and even they are getting grants not funded. Mm. Brilliant grants. And what we've found in our own lab is when we submit, uh, when we submit grants on, you know, Alzheimer's, on addiction, again, on all these sort of obvious, uh, health things that I guess are easier to understand, um, you know, they, they can't throw enough money at that. Mm-hmm. But when we try to submit grants that are more evolutionarily focused, that st- try to, you know, mine some of these non-traditional models like songbirds. So, yeah, it is. I, I always think like, why not take 5% out of the military budget, stick it into science, <laughs> but that's like a very controversial take on things it seems inflated whereas right, science right. seems underfunded to right me. right like with uh with our own experience in our lab um it's been very frustrating because you know we've submitted a lot of grants um you know grants of across the board uh, have very low funding rates you know only the top 20 or even five or one percent uh of grants get funded and when we submit grants on for instance addiction or alzheimer's they really can't throw money at those sorts of things fast enough. Right. But when we submit grants that I am extremely proud of, grants that I think are, you know, incredibly important for, again, the understanding of speech and language, of fine motor behavior, but they're more sort of evolutionary uh, focused, curiosity driven, these more um, really, you know, compelling avenues of research in a lot of ways, people especially in today's funding climate, they just don't want to take a chance or it's too weird. Basically, it's just not mouse-centric enough. You know, (laughs) it's, you know, unfortunately, because there's so many people working in the mouse field and that's all they're familiar with, um, you know, they kind of just want to keep funding that. It's it's this horrible snowball problem um, that I don't know how we're going to get out of it, but it's it's something that's going to be my soapbox uh, as a researcher is we need to not abandon mice, but we need to think creatively. We need to think beyond mice too. Hmm. So I want to go back to birds a little yeah, bit. I am always so, down to go back to birds. So something with studying human speech patterns, mm-hmm. uh, human vocalization, it's um, a difficult thing. You mm-hmm. have all of our ancestors and and very common uh, uh, Neanderthals, other other sapiens are all uh, extinct. Mm-hmm. Um, I wonder who did that. <laughs> um, but but with birds, it, it seems like you wouldn't have this this same problem. Is there uh, because of the diversity of species and because there's so many species so close to one another? Is does that make it easier to kind of study the evolution of speech? Not not that. Um, I, I mean, I don't, I don't want to make the mistake of saying like one bird is more advanced than another one, whatever that would mean. But there, there must be, there must be some species where you can kind of see these these changes occurring almost. That's actually something I'm very interested in, and that's what first uh, led me to go down to the Amazon to study um, a particular group of birds called sabassines. That they're sort of thought of as the non-learning cousins of songbirds where, you know, it's thought that songbirds are vocal learners. They have these learned songs and Savasines are vocal non-learners. They have innate songs. But what, what I did as an undergrad, you know, as I was so fascinated with reading all the behavioral research 
And what I saw were all these papers on these incredible duets that a lot of these subossine uh, birds do, where it's just precisely mathematically timed. And these partners are at the very least learning to match each other. They're learning in the rhythmic domain, even if they're not learning sort of the spectral components of their vocal calls. And so that sort of has been a big thing that I've been curious about is how does speech, how do speech and language and birdsong, how do these complex vocal behaviors evolve? What do the intermediate steps look like? So a lot of the animals I study, uh, bats, hummingbirds, um, these subossines, I'm really curious about um, what does it look like to be on the way to vocal learning? Because again, if you think about our own ancestors, um, we clearly weren't walking along the savanna and suddenly, you know, overnight, whoa, <laughs> I can speak. Hey, guys, you know, <laughs> mm-hmm. it's, it's one of the most complicated things a brain can do. You know, speech lights up all sorts of areas of the brain when we're talking to each other. And um, so th- this is not something that can evolve overnight. But what does it look like to be sort of on the way to speaking, to be on the way to being able to control your vocalizations, to be able to control the timing? Um, and that's something I'm very curious about. And you're absolutely right. I think we can learn a lot about that by studying animal models. Like, I, I think it's sort of counterintuitive at first because like, oh, well, birds, I mean, we've been diverged for hundreds of millions of years. You know, like, what can we possibly learn that would be applicable to humans, right? Because maybe birds just did it in their own way. But in fact, the distance between us, the, the fact that we can look at these independent evolutionary events, uh, it actually adds strength to the kinds of analyses we can do. So an example that I love to use is if you think about a shark, a dolphin, and an ichthyosaur. They're, you know, compl- I don't know what an ichthyosaur is. Yeah, well, you know, maybe you know like a plesiosaur, like Loch Ness Monster. Oh, okay. <laughs> like... Uh, they're not dinosaurs, but they're these extinct underwater uh, reptiles that lived, you know, sort of contemporaneously with dinosaurs. And yeah, so, so you, had, re- you had reptiles going back in the ocean as well? Yeah, yeah. So we have ichthyosaurs. They basically were like these lizard dolphins hmm. that uh, used to exist. And so you have like these ichthyosaurs, you have sharks, you have dolphins. And even though they're completely unrelated, you know, one's like, a fish lizard, one is a fish and one's, you know, as we were talking earlier, kind of like a cow mermaid. Um, And yet they've all converged on these similar body plans. They've all got these torpedo body shapes and uh, sharp teeth, uh, sort of these stiff, um, uh, stiff fins to help them steer around in the water. And so the pressure, the, the environmental pressure, evolutionary pressure of needing to be an apex predator underwater has imposed these constraints, these similar evolutionary constraints where there are just some good solutions to them, like having sharp teeth to catch fish, like having a torpedo body shape. Um, and they've so they've converged on similar solutions to that problem. And by studying these animals um, that have similarly evolved to be underwater apex predators, we can learn like what are the fundamentals? What are those fundamental features? of being an apex predator underwater. So what's fascinating is that applies to the brain as well. By studying different animals that have independently evolved the ability to learn 
their vocal calls, to learn to imitate, we can learn what are the fundamental features of being able to do this behavior. And so this is um, some work that I've already published uh, that I'm continuing to publish is comparing, for instance, gene activity in parts of the human brain and parts of the songbird brain, in the parrot brain, um, in the future, in the singing bat brain. Um, again, totally independent animals that have this imitative behavior and asking, you know, even though so many of the genes are different, what are the genes that are acting the same, that are being activated the same in their sort of vocalization areas? And what can we learn about sort of the fundamental genetic molecular requirements to run this behavior? Like what is the base code on a molecular level for speech and language? Hmm. So there's a lot of power in this sort of comparative evolutionary approach that isn't immediately apparent. But by studying animals that have independently solved the same problem, we can sort of clear away the species-specific, you know, details and find what are really the core elements that allow for these behaviors to exist. So there's like a set of genes that allow for vocalization? Yeah. I mean, it's always going to be, you know, there are going to be some of these core features and some species-specific features, but, you know, it's, again, this complicated process that involves a lot of genes. So, for instance... Um, one thing that we discovered is that it's uh, one thing you see over and over again are these what, what are called cortical spinal connections. So this sort of forebrain thinky part of the brain uh, that does high level motor control, the motor cortex projects directly to the parts of uh, the hindbrain that control the larynx, that control vocal, vocal behavior or the syrinx in the case of the songbird, um, the little thing that allows it to do it with itself. So you have this direct projection, whereas in animals that don't have vocal uh, learn the ability to learn their vocalizations, a lot of times you see that that direct projection is missing. And so by studying, by comparing songbird and human gene activity in speech regions, we found the putative set of genes that allows that projection to be made, these slit robo axon guidance genes. So... Again, through this comparative approach, not only are we learning more about birdsong, we're learning more about ourselves as well. Well, as we start wrapping up here, I have my guest each week plug a charity of their choice. Did you have one in mind? I do. I, I thought about this. Um, conservation is really important to me. You know, we can't learn about all the fascinating things happening in the animal kingdom if we lose these species um, that are out there. So again, this project that I'm a part of, the Vertebrate Genomes Project, um, we're trying to get the funding now for being able to really make a genome arc to preserve the genomes, the complete set of DNA of every species on Earth. But of course, you know, it's an expensive effort. It's going to involve a lot of, you know, traipsing through the jungle to collect these samples, as well as in doing the the high throughput sequencing itself. And so um, we are actively soliciting donations, um, individual donations, trying to crowdsource these genomes. And if anyone wants to write my address, um, I can help put you in touch with the people to even potentially sponsor some of these genomes that we're trying to sequence, like the hippo and the walrus are two that I'm trying to organize. 
But I think what would be even more important than that would be writing your Congress people. If you write, if you would make a call and tell them that this is critical, we need to support curiosity-based research. We need to support the National Science Foundation. I think I think that is critical. Uh, you know, because we all have you know some change that we can maybe afford or not, but that's really where the holdup is. It's not necessarily that you know we need more individuals to contribute, but we need the government to know that this is important that it's important to fund scientific research and it's going to rich, enrich our own lives as well as hopefully helping to prote- protect the diversity of the amazing and beautiful, you know, sentient animals that we share this planet with. Mm. Yeah, it's it is amazing what a what an oddly political thing that science happens to be for some people. Yeah. I was just advertising uh, some stand-up science shows. I think there was a tweet in Cleveland or something like that. Yeah, Cleveland. And some guy was like, are you going to be doing jokes ab- at, at the expense of, science, uh, of climate deniers or whatever? <laughs> and I was like, like, they didn't even look at what it's, uh, the talks are about, which is memory and um and uh locomotion <laughs> and and people just immediately attach to the uh, like the climate thing just has people i think that they yeah. it's just this big political thing that uh it, i don't understand it i i don't understand how yeah. How how people are so vehemently opposed to any kind of climate research that well, you can't even tri- mention the yeah. word science right. without people automatically being like, "Are you trying to say <laughs> something about the climate?" And, right. and well, you know, I mean, this is not this isn't logic. This is tribalism, right. right? Right. Where you know people on the right, their word is you know climate, and they get really upset. A lot of people on the left, they hear you know vaccines or GMOs, and they get really right, upset. Right. And we just have these flags of, you know, what are our issues that we get really upset and fight with each other about. And it's frustrating because science, it helps all of us, you know, regardless of what you believe. It's it's a process that, you know, I mean, we all want to live. We all want to cure disease. So I don't see why we can't just get on board around this one issue, at least, of support science. Um, But, yeah, unfortunately, uh, the conversation is devolving uh, tribalism is only getting worse um, it's hard to be it's hard to be optimistic about the future but i would hope science would be one thing we can all come together on well science science keeps on chugging along even uh, without uh yeah despite people's best efforts to dismantle it um mm-hmm. fortunately it does need all the help it can get yeah. to move things along faster but uh but um science seems to seems to win in the long run um <laughs> we can hope so i go back and forth sometimes mm-hmm. i'm optimistic sometimes I'm like ah god but uh yeah a- anyway uh, how about we end on a light note what what's uh, uh let's let's throw out another youtube search for people what's what's your favorite songbird out there what's what's the best singer we got out there oh man one one really cool one. So I mentioned uh, the hermit thrush earlier, the mm-hmm. one that does a duet with itself. Yeah. Um, there are other thrushes, the wood thrush, the Swainson thrush. Uh, search for thrush songs slowed down because you hear this call and it's beautiful. It's this haunting sort of sound in the forest. 
you slow some of their songs down and it's like a jazz combo. Hmm. Um, you know, because birds, their sense of time is different. They're literally hearing uh, time differently than we do. And so when you slow these songs down, you start to hear all the richness in there mm. that they can hear. And it's it's mm. just incredible how musical songbird songs really are and all the music that's sort of captured in these songs. That is an excellent idea. I'm going to do that. I'm so happy do I it. asked. Yep. Uh, and I'm so happy that you were able to join me. Well, I was happy morning. to be here. This thank you. Terrific. Well, thank you, Morgan, very much for being a part of this show. And thank you, listeners, for tuning into the Here We Are podcast and being such wonderful, curious people. We'll talk with you more next week. Next week on the Here We Are podcast, really fantastic episode. This is just one of these, you know, I, I get different academics have different levels of kind of doing this stuff, different uh, different levels of experience in terms of communicating with media, doing podcasts, this sort of thing. And uh, this guy, Adam Alter, is just fantastic, has been doing things like my podcast and giving talks and and communicating science to the public for a very long time and has written uh, some successful books including drunk tank pink and other unexpected forces that shape how we think feel and behave and the book that we talk about next week really i mean such a fun fantastic book but just so incredibly relevant for the current world that we're living in. I think any single person listening to this would be into this uh, book, Irresistible, The Rise of Addictive Technology and the Business of Keeping Us Hooked. It's one of these books where, say say uh, you're a listener to this show, yeah, you love how much you learn on this show and, and you know it's changed the way that you look at the world and helped guide some of your decisions and helped you understand this existence a little bit better and if you're like me you wish more people were into this stuff this book is a really great book to to give to somebody who isn't necessarily um into science isn't isn't familiar with reading science maybe doesn't listen to this show but it's just so relevant to what's going on we're all so addicted to our phones and tv and everything else so check out the book irresistible the rise of addictive technology and the business of keeping us hooked it's on paperback and hardcover today adam alter will be my guest next week it's terrific it's a fantastic episode hopefully i'll have him again on to talk about more of his books so make sure and check that out Thank you for checking out all of my stuff against Psychonautics, my documentary, a comics exploration of psychedelics, and uh, checking out my show, Stand Up Science, supporting me live. That's where I, that's what puts the food on the table for me is, is the live shows. So keep spreading the word for me with this, the Stand Up Science, and I'll, I'll also be adding some regular stand up events very soon as well and thank you for your support on patreon every single bit of money that i get on patreon goes toward supporting this podcast 
doing things like I need to buy uh, at the time I'm recording this I'm uh, as soon as I'm done recording this I'm gonna go online buy a new projector for the show uh, one with a brighter bulb so people can see a little bit better and I'll keep the old one as as a backup I need a, a new pointer that has more range because different venues have have uh, where they play the slides from in different areas there's just constantly things like that cropping up all of the time with this podcast and with um, with the live show and just with everything that I'm trying to do with science communication and so the amount of money that I get on Patreon I I set aside specifically for stuff like that for supplies and stuff for my shows and for making this podcast better those of you that listen all the way to the end you are of course my favorites music brought to you this week by the long hunt 